grew up as a believer and as a Christian, often going to other believers in Christian's house from the church, and there was either a, one sign or a plate or a cross stitch in each one of those people's houses. I, I'm assuming it was a requirement in the 90s to get saved and to have this sign. Does anybody have any idea what it would say? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I, yeah, I see a lot of people nodding their heads. You've seen that sign. You, you know what I'm talking about. And I, I grew up with that sign in my life in a very big way. And I want to know, what's, what's the background behind that sign? It's an amazing message to be able to declare constantly to your kids and your family. But what does it mean as me and my house, we will serve the Lord? And you know what? There's an amazing story that came before Joshua uttered that phrase. And that whole story was a story of remembrance. It was God reminding his people of what he has done to them, through them, and for them. And that reminder that God gives them is throughout Scripture. We were reminded constantly as Daniel started the service off talking about the importance of being reminded about what God has done in order for us to choose him. And so this morning is God's reminders for us. It's God's reminders as we sit before him. In order for us to make that statement out of the joy of our heart, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In order to get us there, he's going to remind us of what got us where we are today. And so in this message, it's going to be a little bit interactive. I don't know your full story, but you are certainly sitting here by the grace of God as he's orchestrated many events. And so as we go throughout this message, as God reminds the nation of Israel of everything he's done to them, for them, and through them, he will inevitably be doing that to us. What has he done to you, for you, and through you that is going to lead you to again recommit, rededicate your commitment to serving God? It's a challenge, but it's one that brings great joy and reward. It's one that I go through time and time again. And as a father of four boys, I need to be reminded of what God has done for me already so that I can share that message with them. And then they too will say the same message as for them and their house, they will serve the Lord. And so before we jump into Joshua 24, I'd like you guys to pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, we ask for your Spirit's blessing that you convey to us everything that you've done your goodness, your love, and your devotion. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear your love for us this morning. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, you can flip to it or turn it on uh, to Joshua 24. It's the end of Joshua. The nation has conquered the, the, the promised land, and he brings them back. And this is a the, the second time, actually, excuse me, it's the third time where the nation is gathered here at the end of the conquest of the promised land, and we start our story off with an amazing declaration that God brings his people to a familiar place. Joshua, and this is chapter 24, verse 1 says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders and the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves there before God. Now, as far as a familiar place, as a father, I am used to getting sick from my kids. I'm also used to being woken up by my kids. Um, if I want to play with them. In fact, a couple months before I moved up here, there was a day where we had set out where I, it, was just, it was going to be a Lego day. That's what I was going to do. I was going to play Legos all day with my kids, and it was fantastic because being a 30-year-old, I can play Legos again, and no one like bats an eye at it because I have a bunch of kids. So I go set out, and we, we sit down, and we start playing Legos, and all of a sudden I hear this, Dad, I need some help coming from downstairs. And I, I book it downstairs real fast, and my son, who was being potty trained at the time, missed 
I don't know how he missed, but he missed everywhere, okay? <laughs> and so what do I do as a dad? I, I start bringing it up. I, I clean, well, bring it up. I clean it up. And as I'm doing that, um, I'm trying to do the last, um, the last wipe, if you will, and my toenail was coming off because I went on a hike, and, and the rag caught that toenail and yanked the rest of it off. And so I'm already upset because I'm having to clean this floor, and then I'm trying to bite my tongue because my kids are behind me, and I would love just to continue to play Legos and set out with my normal day and my plan. And then I finally moved back upstairs with the rest of my boys, and we just put together this whole Lego, and I go to sit down, and for some reason my foot slips, and I crush everything I built the day before. And you know what I utter? Like, okay, God, you got my attention. You've been in those situations. Maybe not exactly like that. That was a couple months ago for me, but it still continues. But the Lord has brought you to our knees again. What's happening here in Joshua chapter 24, verse 1, is comes to Shechem. Shechem is an important place in the nation of Israel. It's where Abraham crossed over into Cana for the first time and where, they, where he chose God. It's where Jacob returned to Israel after his uh, journey away and him and his compatriots, they put away their false gods and again chose the God Yahweh. Shechem is a place of meeting God and choosing God. It's a reason why God brings the nation back to this place. After everything he's done for them in conquering the land and establishing them as a people, he wants them to remember that he is the one that has done it and for them to choose him and to reject every other God. And that's why at the end of verse 1 it says, and they presented themselves before God. That's, that's like an offering. That's what's trying to be conveyed. The people are the offering to God in this moment. Brothers and sisters, we have come, God brings us to a familiar place often to choose him and to put away our other gods. We are God's offering this morning. Our voices, our hearts, our attention, our devotion is a, an offering to God. It's a sacrifice at times. And so we sit here as we do every Sunday, a familiar place to put away our other gods, our other idols, and to choose him. That's no different than it is this morning, but we're highlighting it. And so now God addresses his people, and he focuses on what he's done for them and what they need to do in response. And so look at verses 22 through 3a. God reminds them of his surprising grace. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. God surprises us by his grace. Why did he choose Abraham? The answer, because he did. That, that's, that's what God's trying to convey. In the start of retelling the whole story, he goes back to the very beginning. Your father Abraham was chosen because I chose to choose him. That's it. If you look, the, I, I always screw this word, the pseudopigraphical book, the Jubilees. Uh, it sounds like I made it up. I didn't. But the Jubilees, it's, it's not a book that we go to scripture. It's a book we would reference to maybe some Jewish culture. And in it, they try to describe why God chose Abraham. It says when he was 14 years old, he began to see that his father and his people worshiping these false gods wasn't good, and so he began to detest it. But then when he reached 60 years old, he was so fed up, he lit the temple on fire, crashed all the temples, and that's why God chose Abraham, because Abraham rose to the top for some reason. And do you know what? Is that true? Not at all. That's not true at all. But why do we create these fantastical stories of why God chooses certain people? Because it's a way for us to manipulate God's grace. 
But if we can manipulate God's grace, it stops being grace. And here's what I say that, because look at the passage. It actually kind of conveys the opposite, that Terah, Abraham, and Nahor, they served other gods. Abraham was no different. Abraham was trapped in the paganism that surrounded him. There's really no rational reason why God would choose him other than he did. See, this is an amazing blessing for me, brothers and sisters, that God's grace for choosing me had nothing to do with me at all. I can't lose it. I can't undo it, but I am grateful and thankful that he chose me, that he has called me, and he's called you as you sit here today. If you look back and recount the stories of why, what got you into this seat today, many of us here in this room are transplants. I'm probably one of the most recent transplants of this area, but I know a lot of what I was amazed when I came here in November and asked, are, are you from around here? No, I moved here 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. This area is full of transplants, but what got you here? Was it anything of your doing or did the Lord orchestrate events that led you to be in this place today? I'll take my lead from Scripture that calls it God's grace that we are here. And so the Lord first and foremost surprises us by His grace. It's not something that we can either manipulate or hold on to. It's something that He truly gives us. And so trying to understand the events of our lives, if you recount all the different pieces, the interactions that led us here, we try to interpret them with the senses and the faculties that we have. And so we look at God's amazing grace, and we want to make sense of it. We want to understand it. And one of those faculties, however, we, we may try to apply them. We're finite creatures trying to understand the infinite, the timeless, spainless, immaterial God. We are trying to wrap our minds around it. And so sometimes our senses... Or our faculties actually do the opposite. They don't lead us to embrace God. With, they actually lead us to be more confused and reject Him, which is why we come to the next thing that He reminds us of, that God reminds us of His perfect pace. Look at me. Uh, the second part of verse 3 and the first part of verse 4, it says, And I made, this is Abraham, and I made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Now, that's an oxymoron if you read it real fast. Those nine words represented 25 years of waiting. And, and even look at the big picture. I made his offspring many. I gave him one. One times one is still one. It doesn't change. And so God's reminding him of this people. Let's give Joshua the benefit of the doubt. Let's read the next part. Verse 4. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. Now we're up to two grandsons and one son for the fulfillment of this promises. And you know how much time's incorporated in this, this little section? 45 years. Now, is God, does it look like he's fulfilling that promise of I made his descendants many? Absolutely not. From our standpoint, using our sense of time and understanding, we think God is taking a break. See, we're often in a, in a hurry. We're hustling around, and God seems like he's out on a stroll. He's just enjoying the walk. He's enjoying the season. So God reminds us of his perfect pace. But this frustrates us, doesn't, doesn't it? We have a hard time grasping this and holding on to it. The, the constraints that affect us, but they don't affect God, and often seems like we're rushing and God's taking a stroll. And so Abraham had to wait. We have to wait. How many of you have waited here for 25 years for something? Some of you waited 25 years for your kids to leave the house. I know that. I think about that right now. But not much in our life we were willing to wait for 25 years. And God in this passage says it's perfectly fine. See, what's the big picture? What's happening in this story? The whole nation of Israel 
thousands upon thousands are gathered in this land. And so when you read this, hundreds of years removed, we do see that God is the fulfiller of his promises. There's no way he can't fulfill his promise. It just happens in his own pace, a pace that we balk at. We like to treat God like we do high school football, I mean, uh, college football coaches. I want you to fix it now. You don't have time as a coach nowadays to create a culture of winning, to change the expectations. You have to enter in and you need to win immediately, otherwise someone else will get your job very soon. And so we've adopted that into our expression and relationship with God. God, I want you to fix this now. And he is certainly saying, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it on my time in the right way. And we need to be humbled. And so what is the Lord doing? He's humbling us by reminding us of his perfect pace. When it happens, it happens. See, we easily lose sight of what God has done by demanding too much too soon. Have you done that before? Demanded of God too much too soon? I certainly have. Only to be amazed when God actually does show up and I look back and hindsight says, I'm glad it happened in the way it happened. Kelsey and I were really anxious to leave our church our last church in 2017, and when I would start applying, I would feel anxious. I would be upset. I would be testy, if you will. And then I knew that that was the Lord saying, stop. And it took a whole year, even longer than that, for the Lord to finally bring me here. But this with, with full peace and confidence, knowing that's what God's will was, and I love it. Had I rushed God and done things myself, I would have endured more pain and uncertainty. But instead, God reminded me of his perfect pace. And so although that pace may puzzle us and it will stretch us, but we'll come to, maybe we'll come to see why he did it in the first place. We'll see why the time was needed. But there's also some times when we won't see it. Where what has taken place in your life and, and why God is waiting or why it's taking so long or maybe why it happened so quick, he won't reveal that to us. Because ultimately he reveals the next thing, that God reminds us of his mystifying ways. Look at the next part of verse 4. I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Now, reading that on the surface, we might think that, oh, that's fine. What's the big deal? But as a Jew reading this, what would we hear? Esau, got es um, Esau who is not the fulfiller, who the promise is not going through, he is not God's chosen line, he got to receive his inheritance, but Jacob, who is the chosen path, whom the Savior will come through, he went down to Egypt, and what did he receive in his people? Slavery. Why did the people who are not chosen, let's call them the faithful or the faithless, how come the faithless got to receive their inheritance, but the faithful got something that was not as good? Or they had to wait. And so what should we expect for the faithful? God's ways, as we try to understand them as our own, we're, we're going to balk and struggle at it. And yet, what should we expect as the faithful? And we need to turn to Hebrews. We need to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 32. I'd love you to follow along, but I know it's going to be on screen. And so we get this amazing picture, picture that the author of Hebrews writes. He says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured. Whoa, hit the brakes right there. 
Man, we were on a steep uphill climb of what the faithful should expect. And then all of a sudden, he throws us out of left field. Some, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts, mountains, dens, and caves. So what should the faithful expect, brothers and sisters? Both. This is the mystifying ways of God. We can't quantify him. We can't qualify each one of his things. We can't expect to receive the same thing that our neighbor is receiving from him. Why? Because he is a great infinite God who works all things for the good of his will and those who love him. But why should we snuggle up with this idea? Why is this an important reminder to hold on to and not to like put in the recesses of our mind and just hide it under the rug? Why should this be at the forefront of our proclamation of who God is? Have you ever wondered why? I love it because it is honest. The Lord is not hiding this. He is not revealing something and just hiding the bad aspects. He is open and honest. This is the way it is. I love a confident God. I love a God who is not worried about what he will do or the influence he will take. I love the picture that this mystery is not to be balked at because we see a God who's confident in what he's doing. I see and read a God who knows what he's doing. So Israel, I mean, so Jacob and his family went down to Egypt and became slaves who grew to a, an enormous number that wouldn't have happened had they stayed in Cana. They grew and lived off of the fat of Egypt and grew and multiplied and multiplied and they've become a mighty nation. And they move up their way to conquer. And so God does not erase the mystery or darken the times or, or remove the dark times from record. He puts it at the forefront. And so it keeps us in awe and helps us to trust God. What's taking place isn't just happening on a whim. It's not that he went blind or he forgot or somehow he forgot that I'm faithful. Not the case at all. He knows exactly what's taking place. It may be a mystery and it will result in our joy and enthusiasm for serving a God who's confidently and competently in control. And so his confidence extends from his nature to include his very actions and his ability, especially the next thing he reminds us of. His power. God reminds us of his amazing power. Verse 5. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I didn't, did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. God's use of power in this world often takes place through his own creation, his people. God's power was demonstrated through Moses and Aaron in giving of the plagues. It was ultimately God's power, but he was using human agents to do it. It's amazing that that still takes place today, that the power of God is still orchestrated and works through you and I in this church, whether through its prayer, it's even a hug. I've seen people who are stubborn not to accept Christ as their Savior. Their whole wall broke down because the power of one hug did it. That, that's what cemented their faith. So God may use human instruments to display his power, but then he gives the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. If you read that story in Exodus 14, it's an amazing account. Now, we'll probably just picture, maybe you've seen the prince of Egypt, and the nation is walking along, and all of a sudden they get to the Red Sea. Now, you have to ask the question, why, why would they do that? 
Why would they lead themselves right there? Well, they're following God. They're following the pillar of fire. And so they're actually on their way out, out of Sinai, leaving behind the nation of Egypt that is chasing them. But God actually turns them around if you read the account. He turns them around and heads them back down towards the sea. God is the one who led them to be pinned in in the first place. Mountains on one side, a sea behind them, and an army in front of them. God is the one that shows that situation. Why? To display his power to his people. And so that's what happens. God is the one that hymns us in. Oftentimes, don't you feel hemmed in by your circumstances right now? You're pinned on on every side. You have hardship and heartache. You have things that are out of your control. You are pinned in, just like the nation of Israel, against the sea. Why? For God to show up and to display his power. I've seen that in my own life. But why does he do that? Why does he pin us in? Yes, to display his power, but oftentimes we we kind of think that God's purpose is to deform us or to make us kind of let go and let God, if you will. Not the case. See, God's purpose is not to deform us into blobs of limp jello, but to transform us from prideful, self-reliant little gods into humble worshipers who gladly confess our help comes from God, the maker of heaven and earth. And so you, brothers and sisters, just like I have, we've been pinned in. It's not to make you, as I said, limp jello, just whatever happens, all right, laissez-faire. That's not the case at all. It's actually to remove the desire to be gods ourselves. We have no power. We have no control. It is God alone, the maker of heaven and earth. And so God will sometimes box us up into our own helplessness in order to show us that we're not saved by our cleverness, That we're not saved by our own insight, by our manipulations, our feelings, our anxieties, our worries, or our doubts. Nothing can save us but God who makes a way in the sea and a path through many waters. God reveals to us his amazing power. And we grow blind to that. We forget it at times, which is why God is reminding us. Think back. Have you been pinned in at a time of your life and you can see how the Lord's power has come about to lead you out of it? He wants you to remember it. Recall it. Don't forget it. Relive it, if you will, as the nation is reliving their story right now. And so we have these amazing reminders that God's grace is surprising, that his pace is perfect, that his ways are mystifying, and his power is amazing. But he continues. He's not done yet. He reminds them of an event their parents even lived through, something really close to their own recollection. Maybe their parents told stories of it, and he reminds them of his faithful protection. I love this story. It's a reference to an amazing story in Joshua 24, verse 8. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he invited Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. Let me tell you this story. It comes from Numbers 22 through 24. It's an amazing story. The nation of Israel is marching. They, they are a, a tidal wave about to come and conquer these whole lands, especially the land of Moab. So this king, Balak, is probably sitting up in his castle, and he's looking at this tidal wave of Israelites coming, unstoppable force. And he thinks, i got to do something. And he remembers, there's this guy named Balaam I can go to. Now, Balaam is a prophet for profit, okay? You pay him, and he will give you a favorable thing to say. So he's making money off of this. So he sends his emissaries to Balaam. 
Balaam hears it and wants to go bless him because, man, that, that chunk change that he can get out of that, it's awesome. He's super excited about it. But God tells him, no, you can't. I will not let you do that. The next day, uh, Balak sends another emissary and gives him even more money, essentially a blank check. What do you want? And so Balaam's heart's super excited. I, I really want to do this, God. Can I? And so God says, all right, I'm going to teach you a lesson. You can go, but you can't say or do anything. I won't let you. I mean, I, it's up to me. You will only do what I want you to say and do. And so he goes. He hops on his donkey. I don't know if you heard this story. And he's riding on his donkey on his way to the king of Moab. And three times his donkey does something. The first time, the donkey sees an angel of the Lord with a, a spear or a sword directed at Balaam. Now, Balaam doesn't see any of this, but the donkey does, thankfully. And so the donkey spares his life. And so instead of staying on the path to the king of Moab, he runs off through the, uh, the field bouncing around. And so Balaam's a little frustrated. He has some, some early ancient road rage. And so he starts beating his donkey. Why would you do this? Get on path, donkey. And so he gets back on the path and starts walking. Well, the angel of the Lord appears again on the path. And the path is pretty narrow. There's a wall on one side and a wall on another side, but there's just enough room for the donkey to squeeze by. So the donkey squeezes by and scrapes uh, Balaam's foot up against the wall. You've all had that where you're, you hit like a cinder block wall. And so Balaam, again, the road rage comes out. What does he do? He beats his donkey again for the second time. And he moves on. The donkey keeps walking, and now it comes to a place where there is nowhere to pass. The angel of the Lord stands with a, with a, a spear or a sword pointed at Balaam's head, and the donkey just sits down. I, I'm not getting paid enough for this. So the, the donkey sits down, and he beats him for a third time. And in that moment, the Lord opens the donkey's mouth. Now, donkeys don't talk. I'm pretty sure they didn't then. They don't now. And donkey turns around and says, what have I done to deserve this? And Balaam, in that moment, when the donkey's mouth was open, Balaam's eyes was open, and, and the spear is in his eyes, and he knocks back. So who's the real donkey of the story? The diviner and seer? No, it was Balaam who was. And so God is teaching him a lesson. You can't do or say anything. I won't let you do or say. And eventually Balaam goes to the king of Moab and he gets up there. There's pomp and circumstances. There's a brass band playing for these curses to go out towards Israel. But what has God told Israel? Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. What's God's heart towards Israel? To receive a blessing. And so Balaam tries with all of his might to utter a curse. But what has come out? A blessing. He can't help it. The king of Moab is shocked. What is coming out of his mouth? Put him down. Get him off stage. And so Balaam is uttering promises and blessings for Israel to come and conquer Moab. And you know what's amazing about this story? What does the nation of Israel know about this story as it's taking place? None of it. God is faithfully protecting his people and they know nothing of what's going on in this story. They only find out later of the extent that God is going to to fulfill his promise to bless and to protect them. Brothers and sisters, we are not aware of even the slightest hint of what God is doing to protect your life, my life, and our family. We have no idea. But God is faithfully protecting us as he faithfully protected Israel. Now, that's an amazing story to hold on to and to remember and I ask God continually, God, can you reveal stories of protection that I am not aware of? Can you reveal to me what I have missed or not known? What an amazing blessing that we have a God who protects us despite us having to know. But that's his disposition towards us. And then he tells us even more so, not only am I protecting you, I go out before you. The verse 11, it says, And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. 
and also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Gershites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. Everything that you've accomplished and held on to, it's been through me. That phrase, sent hornets out before you, it's believed that God just um, uh, put chaos in the mind of, in, uh, of Israel's enemies, that they couldn't even fight. It could have been literal hornets, and even so, that would have been pretty crazy. Hornets flying around. But it's not by our sword or our bow. We can't achieve anything. Ultimately, it's by the Lord's power that's working through us, for us, and to us. And so we're recounting these and even imagining the amount of protection that God is offering us and is committed to bestow to us should be enough to have us choose him. But he gives us one last reminder. He makes it really simple. He brings it down to our level that we understand clearly that God reminds us of his continuous provision. God is the God who provides. Look at verse 13. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. You dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. You know what? I, that's more true for us today than it was for them. Where do we get our food? Most often the grocery store. Who built our house? I, I have no idea. Who founded this city? I'm sure I could look it up, but I don't know them. I'll read that verse again. That I gave you a land which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you dwell in them. That's more true of us today than it was for them. I don't know who grew my food. I don't know who built my house. I, I don't know who, I, I kind of know who built this church at least. That's kind of fun to know. But nonetheless, I don't know everyone in here who's helped make this church a family and a body. And yet I enjoy all the blessings of them. God is the God who provides. He's the one who orchestrates the living and the growing of all the food. He's the one that provides all the materials for everything to build. Human may, humans may be the instrument to bring those together, but God gives the growth, which is why we know and believe what James says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. And so what is God doing? He brings it down to the most minuscule level. I want you to look at the very basic necessities of your life and realize I am the one behind which you're receiving them. I'm the one providing them for you. You did not achieve this. I have given it to you and you've received it. And so what does this culminate into? It culminates for us even more so than this, the New Testament hope. I have given you myself and my son the salvation and the hope that secures your future from now into eternity living with me. You did nothing to attain, but I put it into motion and saw it to come to fruition so that you may have life and have it to the fullest that you may believe. And so we, more so than them, have more reason to see this and, and to understand that God is our faithful and continuous provider. And so we come to this conclusion that, but, that God is the God of our yesterdays. He allows the memory of them to turn the past into a ministry of spiritual growth for the future. God reminds us of the past to protect us from a very shallow security of the present. Brothers and sisters, we should all be historians for our life and for the life of the church because we see it as an anchor to hold on to. And so you can serve whatever God you'd like. That's how Joshua ends this in the next passage. You, you can go back serving the other gods. And for us, we can serve the gods of our culture. 
You can serve the God of politics. You can serve the God of money. You can serve the God of pleasure. You can serve the God of security or comfort, but ultimately they are all tied to one thing. You can serve the God of self. But after going through the panoply of God's reminders, I have one conclusion. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's your decision today. That is your choice as the Lord reminds you of all the things he's done. He wants you to put away your other gods and your idols and choose him. He's brought us to a familiar place each Sunday to do that again. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we've sat before your throne this morning in awe and wonder as we remembered your mighty work in our lives and the lives of the people who preceded us. Father, who are we to question you? Who are we, to cho- who are, who are we that you would choose us? Who are we that you would wait for us? Who are we that you would display your wondrous, wondrous works for us? Offer us your great protection and dispense your endless provision. Who are we that you should know our name? But thank you, God, for your surprising grace that you are helping us to put away our idols and to give us every reason to choose you and to serve you forever. Father, I pray for the brothers and sisters in here who are broken, who are either hemmed in and need your power, who are confused and impatient and need your pace to be described, who are in great need and and are requesting your provision, or who are in danger and need your protection. Father, may they find you this morning. May they put away, may we all put away our idols and declare that you are the one whom we will serve from now until you call us home. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.